Port Leisure, the morning of July the 13th, as members of the Irish Veteran and Vintage Car Club prepare for the first Gordon Bennett commemoration rally, which is about to begin. I have to prime, I have to prime the engine with petrol. What the start? Just flood your carburetor and hope she'll start. That's all you can see when you have a 1901 car. Hope you'll start. They often start a lot better than the latest type cars you have. Ozzy Bennett setting off on his 1901 de Dion Bouton. The object of the rally was to cover the original circuit, forming a rough triangle of the towns Port Leisure, Carlo and Kilcullen, and enthusiasts from all over the country have gathered to take part. This is the fifth oldest standard in existence, and it's the oldest closed standard. Well, the thing that's unusual about this car, it was supposed to belong to the Pankhurst family, the suffragettes in England. We bought it at the sword sale in Scotland. About ten years ago. It's a six-cylinder car. British Leyland, I think, still have the um, original standard, which is on the same chassis as this one. It's a 1911 Clement Talbot. We have it about um, ten years. Well, it's a twin-cylinder Renault, uh, 10-14 horsepower, 1904. It was um, originally came from France. It wasn't an Irish car. And... uh, I believe took part in a very early Monte Carlo rally. It's the only one of its type known to to exist. It's a, it's a big twin, which is very rare. And the body is entirely made of wood. Most of the car is original, except the mudguards and the bonnet. In 1901, Arnold Johnson, made in Scotland. It's a three-seater, and the driver sits in the middle row of seats, and uh, the front passengers have no protection in front of them at all whatsoever. And then the back passengers sit back-to-back, like a back-to-back car, kind of the next step up from a horse carriage. And when they designed this, uh, they reckoned that uh, the design of cars wouldn't change radically for over the next 20, 30 years, like horse-drawn vehicles didn't change over the last 100 years. This rally commemorates the fact that 71 years ago, in 1903, the world's eyes turned to Ireland, where the newly discovered sport of motor racing was staging its greatest prize, the Gordon Bennett Trophy. Frank Cassidy. You see, the Gordon Bennett race, as such, was, the, was to my mind, and to, to a lot of people's mind, was the most famous race ever held since or before. But nothing very much was done about it. But this year now we have started the annual Gordon Bennett commemoration race, or rally, and... We hope that this is going to build into something very, very big. The Gordon Bennett race took its name from James Gordon Bennett, owner and publisher of the New York Herald, the man who sent Henry Morton Stanley in search of Dr Livingstone. Shortly after the success of that epic African adventure, Gordon Bennett moved to Paris, where he published a Paris and London edition of his paper. And, as another promotional exercise for the New York Herald, Gordon Bennett turned his attention to the latest craze in France motor racing, and in 1899 he presented a trophy, the Coupe Internationale, to the Automobile Club de France for an annual international motor race. The rules of the race stated, 
The cars were to weigh under 1,000 kilograms each, about one tonne. The course would not be less than 344 or more than 416 miles. The race to be held between May 15th and August 15th each year by the country which won the previous race, or failing that, in France. Any recognised club could enter three cars to represent its country. But it was the fifth and final rule which caused most trouble. Every car competing must have been constructed throughout and as regards every part in the country of its origin. The first and second Gordon Bennett races were won by France, but in 1902 an Englishman, glorying in the name Selwyn Francis Edge, driving a Napier for England, won the race from Paris to Innsbruck. This meant that the race of 1903 would be staged on English soil. The followers of motoring in England knew that this was not possible, as motor racing was still illegal on the public roads, and hostility against the car was still very strong in 1902. The Automobile Club of England was about to hand back the staging of the 1903 race to France when a compromise was suggested by an Irishman, R.J. McCready, editor of the Irish motoring magazine The Motor News, namely that the race be held in Ireland. The Light Locomotives Ireland Bill was introduced into Parliament by John Scott Montague, which exempted the competing cars from any speed limit on the day of the race, and absolved the county councils from any expenses spent on road improvements. The bill was supported by all the Irish members and most other MPs, and was through the Commons in a record seven days after its first reading. The Automobile Club, to win over any opposition which might exist, canvassed hoteliers, newspapers, MPs, Irish peers, railway companies, county councils, mayors, and even clerics. In turn, a circular was sent by the bishops in the area to be read in all churches. Father Dunny, a native of Ard Skull, now 93 years old, remembers this letter. Well, in more, in more cases, a man called Dr Foley was a man. Kildare, Kildare in Lachlan. And in, in, uh, in Dublin, it was Archbishop Welsh. The priest got orders to speak from the altar upon the previous Sunday and tell the people to keep off the roads, you know. And that was done every, every place. As a gesture to Ireland's willingness to stage the race, Count Zaborowski proposed to the Automobile Club of Great Britain that England's racing cars should adopt Ireland's national colour green as their emblem. And so British racing green, used on the English cars in 1903, is the colour still used on British racing cars today. As soon as Parliament had passed the new law and support for the race was evident in Ireland, the Automobile Club sent its representatives, Claude Johnson and Count Soborowski, to Ireland to find a suitable circuit for the race. Five possible routes for the race were found and examined. The course finally selected was a figure of eight circuit, running from Nace to Kilcullen, down the Carlow Road to Carlow, turning back to Athy and Nace, then down the main Cork Road, through Kildare and Monaster Evan, turning at Maraborough, now Portlicia, to Stradbally, Athy and back to Nace. This circuit was later amended, leaving out Nace and travelling across the Curragh instead. Thus, two circuits were involved, the longer being over 51 miles and the shorter being 40 miles. Seven laps would be covered, six over the short and long circuit and the seventh over the longer distance. The final distance of the race would be 327.5 miles, but the race still needed a starting and finishing point. The Motor News.
Just one and three-quarter miles from the turn to Old Kilcullen, the committee decided to have the start and finish of the great race. There is a police barracks on the right, and on the left the grounds of Ballyshannon House, where it is intended to erect the grandstand. The grandstand at Ballyshannon was a huge structure, crossing the road so the cars could drive underneath. The stand was to hold a thousand people, who would pay two pounds each into the enclosure and stand. Bookings for this stand were taken by Thomas Cook, the company of travel agents. The grandstand enclosure consisted of a tent city, providing sleeping accommodation for hundreds of people, and a specially erected telegraph centre, where journalists could flash the progress of the race to their papers all over the world. James O'Rourke of Ballyshannon was 17 years old when the enclosure area was being built. Well, I remember seeing the stand. I was up under the building. Uh, it was uh, about a half a mile or so from Ballyshannon Cross. And it was right across the road, from one side of the road to the other. Oh, it was uh, five perch wide there were at this bridge. Oh, I'd say there were uh, nearly two months. There was terrible yellers going up, you know, but to keep uh, keep the crowd up and big planks across the road. It was a terrible stretch. It was from here, you know. So the road now was way down there, and it was from here the house beyond. I'd seen the timber going down, and I'd seen them taking it down. Well, then up along the road for about a mile, it was sort of a hill like and uh, high land over the ditches. Well, then people had stands there that they built themselves like for the daily. You could see the road now down to a highway called the Motor Art School. You'd see the road now, we'll say, for I uh, four miles away, you, and they'd see them coming. Of course, they couldn't get down there, they wouldn't let you down. They wouldn't let you out in the road, you see. No, you had to stay in the yard where you are. You see, you couldn't go to the road tower, no, no trapping on the road tower. One account of the time estimated that 7,000 officials were used for stewarding. 3,000 constables of the Royal Irish Constabulary were drafted into the area to control the crowds. Father Dunny saw the race at his home at the Motovard Skull. Every county in Ireland had to send a quarter of their, of their force to guard the race. There must have been 500 policemen there. And they were the constabulary, the, 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 the RIC. Or there, were about, or there were about 30 policemen staying at our place. There were the police from one particular county. I think it was Sligo. Stayed out in the farm buildings. I, I was a, a farming stock, you see. And they stayed out on the lofts. There were a number of lofts, you see, and barns. And there was straw put there for them and they slept there. I don't know whether they were there for two or three days, you see. They came the day before the race, and they went away the day after the race. Two large squads of police were stationed at Ballyshannon. James O'Rourke again. The, the constabulary men was on the road. They were sleeping in a barn down here in Ballyshannon. Hoonies was the name, James Hoonies. And they had a big, long, great big, long... Uh, well, it was a cattle house, you see. The cattle was under than horses. It was a big long barn. There was straw, oaten straw, put on the floor and they all lay on it. They come there that night. It said there'd be about nearly 40 of them. Over 40, I think. 
and uh, the sergeant come up. I think his name was Wilt, Sergeant Wilt. And there was no one around, and he came up to me and wanted to know what you go down and do the cooking. Another man in Ballyshannon whose family had police billeted with them was Tyg Byrne. A man, a man from the depot in the Phoenix Park came down here to know if we could put up the police for them on a big corn lot we have. So they put up a tent in the field outside the house and they slept on this loft that we have. And uh, Head Constable English was the man in charge of the police and he stayed in the house that night. They were here for a couple of days, you see, before that thing. And then they dispersed from here along the route, you know. But 60 police were, were uh, here altogether, I'd say. The Treasury footed the £1,200 bill which the county councils had spent improving the roads for the race. Father Dunny. The roads were all prepared and Tarmac had them done all to that. The whole roads were done up for the fortnight before the race and uh, rolled in, do you see, and made perfectly level. And there was no, no such thing as holes in the road at the time. Where the where the uh, trees overhung the road, or, or 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 the hedges were too wide, they cut in order to give the people a chance of seeing the race. Joseph Melia remembers the work done on the roads at his home in Monaster Evan. Well, I may tell you, the ro- the roads have improved so much. They're like a slate now along here. And that time they rake the big stones over to put light gravel on it for the cars. So you see the change come now is now the time they should have the motor race on it. That's when they're all hand broken stones. And they rake them you see one side. And they put this gravel up and down. You know what gravel is? Here and there. I remember that all right. We were saying that wouldn't last long the iron wheels that time on horses and cars. One of the greatest problems on the roads was dust. The answer was found in a newly developed chemical, Westromite. Barrels of the chemical were imported from the manufacturers Beerholm and Van Westrom and sprayed on the roads by the county councils. The chemical was reported to be a complete success. As the time for the race drew near, arrangements went ahead and the Automobile Club decided to make the race part of an event to be called the Irish Fortnight the Gordon Bennett part of the event to be the main attraction. The other events would include speed trials for cars and motorcycles at the Phoenix Park, a garden party at the Viceregal Lodge, a motor tour from Dublin to Belfast, and a motorboat race on July the 11th in Cork for the Alfred Harmsworth Cup. The French railway companies laid on special excursions to Ireland. The City of Dublin Steam Packet Company advertised London to Dublin in nine and a quarter hours. Special fares for steamers on the Liverpool-Dublin route were quoted deck, six and threepence return, cabin, 21 shillings. Motor cars conveyed for 36 shillings return. One person who cashed in on the interest in the race was a young Irish writer living in Paris, James Joyce. 
Under the name of a special Paris correspondent, he sent an interview with one of the French driving team, Henri Fournier, to the Irish Times. Another Irish artist who had a connection with the 1903 race was songwriter Percy French. After the Gordon Bennett race of 1902, Percy French wrote Jim Whelan's Automobile. Jim Whelan's ghost took a turn round the coast on the day of the Malta car race. And the wind being fair, he was whooshed through the air at a rate even edged air and face. When the winner came up to receive the great cup, his anger he could not conceal. For there at the post was Jim Whelan's ghost with three-fourths of his automobile. Seven control points were used. These controls to be at Old Kilcullen, Kildare, Monasterevan, Stradbally, Athai, Castledermot and Carlow. Each car had a stop at the control points for a period of seven minutes, thus eliminating overtaking on the narrow roads. The winner would be decided by the clock, the car covering the complete course in the shortest time. The week before the race, excitement built up to a climax. A Gordon Bennett inquiry office opened at 11 Lower Sackville Street. Over 100 journalists arrived to cover the race. Motorists arrived after journeys over land and sea from as far away as Budapest and Madrid. The Automobile Club set up its race headquarters in the Shelburne Hotel, Dublin. The Biograph Studio, a film company, obtained special permission to make a film of the race, which could be seen in the American Biograph Cinema Dublin the day after the race. The film, held today in the National Library, was one of the first newsreels filmed in Ireland. Even the Dublin Stock Exchange closed on the day of the race. Motoring Illustrated sent 16 reporters to cover the event and established a record by publishing a special edition of the magazine in Dublin only 12 hours after the race ended. Among the celebrities who arrived were His Royal Highness the Prince of Hohenlohe, Baron Henri de Rothschild, and a Spanish Duke and Duchess who booked a suite at John Malick's Hotel on the Curragh. Many visitors complained of the outrageous prices being charged by hoteliers, business people and farmers, a complaint which is denied by Father Dunny. They didn't. My place, anyway, in a place called Moat Lodge, we put them all up, we gave them straw, you see, and we supplied them with milk for their tea, you see, and... Uh, I, I think, uh, no, they did their own catering, but we'd give them milk, you see. But that was all. I didn't hear of that, I didn't hear of that at all. Uh, I can only speak about my own place. I know there was no charge whatever paid to us anyway. None, none whatever. Mm. Nevertheless, at a time when the average man earned 30 shillings to two pounds a week, magazines gave these examples of prices. A four-mile ride in a jaunting car, ten shillings. A glass of water, sixpence. A wash-up at a farmyard pump, one shilling. A second-rate hotel room in a thigh, three pounds for a night. A room in a cottage near a thigh, six pounds for a night. While at Kilmeade near a thigh, the Motor News reported this incident. Mr. J.C. Percy was anxious to secure a field for some English friends to camp in and was asked the sum of £20 for a single night, although he explained that he did not wish to rent the field for an entire year. Another account of accommodation problems is given by Mary Wright, who lives near Kilcullen. A father of father told us this. It's a true story. He was a student 
Uh, as a matter of fact, he was a deacon at the time, and he was home in his own native town on a holiday, and he went out for a walk with the boys. And there was rooks, he heard rooks going on in this house. And he says, I better go over, there'll be somebody killed. So he knocked, and the woman opened the door, and he says, Me good woman, are you in trouble? But it's like this now, Father. I'm keeping a bit of a lodging house for this motor race. And I have penny beds and three halfpenny beds. And in the three halfpenny beds, uh, they can lie on their back, but on the penny beds, they have to lie in their side. So here's a fella, and he only paid one penny. And he's lying on his back, but by God, I'll make him lie on his side. However, the actual drivers fared a little better. The three-man American team of Owen, Winton and Moores made Timolan Rectory near Ballytor their base. The British team of Jarrett, Stocks and Edge stayed at Reblin Castle near Thai. The German team, Janatze, Baron de Caters and Foxhall Keen, stayed at the Leinster Arms Hotel at Thai. The French team, Fournier, Farmont and Chevalier de Nif, chartered a steamship, the Ferdinand de la Seps, and steamed into the Alexandra docks on the Sunday morning before the race, where huge crowds were gathered to greet them. The French team caused a sensation when, two days before the race, Henri Fournier, the driver interviewed by James Joyce, was dropped from the team after a row with the Moors Company about Fournier's connection with a rival car manufacturer. Fournier was replaced on the team by Gabriel. The Germans, too, had their problems, when two of the team originally picked were objected to because they were professional drivers. Her Jelinek, the manager of the Mercedes team, insisted on picking his own drivers and proved his point by taking a non-German team to Ireland. Genazzi and Baron de Caters being Belgians and Foxhall Keen an American. Camille Genazzi was the best-known driver of the field, but it was he who drove the first car at over 100 kilometres per hour in 1889. The German team almost missed the race, because the month before the three 90-horsepower Mercedes prepared for the race were destroyed in a fire at the factory at Cannstatt, Germany. However, the Mercedes Paris agent, Karl Lehmann, was able to borrow three privately owned 60-horsepower Mercedes Tourers, and these were quickly stripped and prepared for racing. One car which took part in this year's rally is identical to these. The 60-horsepower 9.2-litre engine is a formidable machine even today. Frank Smith, who brought the car from England to the rally, demonstrated that it is still capable of speeds in excess of 80 miles per hour. Third to second. Those are oilers, those uh, feed oil to each bearing, both uh, big end and main. And they feed it in metre quantities because uh, the uh, sump is a dry sump, which means that uh, all the oil you use goes to waste. I've uh, got used to the car a bit now and uh, I've had people following me and telling me what speeds I've been doing. 
with a smooth road and downhill and a brave mind, he could probably get 1995. The weigh-in was held on the day before the race at the Market Square Nace under the supervision of Mr Warby Beaumont of the Automobile Club. As Kildare County Council hadn't a suitable weighbridge for the job, two small machines capable of weighing half a tonne were placed opposite one another. Then, two lengths of tramway line were adjusted on them to act as guides for the wheels of the automobiles. Crude as this arrangement sounds, it seems to have been accurate, because when Farman's panard was found to be 31 pounds overweight, De Niff challenged the accuracy of the scales. The standard weights were fetched, sinisterly enough, from the local jail, and proved to be right to a couple of ounces. The Americans ran into trouble too when Moore's car was found to be 12 pounds too heavy. Another argument erupted when an objection was raised to the Michelin tyres on the German Mercedes. Luckily, the Germans were able to reshod their cars quickly with definitely German-made tyres, and all were satisfied. The crowds moved from the way in at Nace to the hotels and campsites around the course, and prepared for an early start the next morning. The Great Southern and Great Western Railways gathered together all available rolling stock, and between midnight and early morning, 36 trains left Dublin, packed with spectators. At 6am, all roads leading onto the course were closed, and the police took up positions. Two pilot cars were sent over each leg of the circuit to show that the race was about to start. With deafening roars of their exhaust pipes, the great racers drew into line, one behind the other, and at five minutes to seven, Mr Edge's big Napier came up to the post. The cupholder and his mechanician settled themselves into their seats. A score of hands were thrust forward in cordial farewell. At the word, thirty seconds, the two men, who, by the way, presented a picturesque appearance in their green caps and white coats, pulled down their masks. The starter leant forward to shout into the driver's ear the warning words, Five, four, three... Two, one, go. And with unsensational steadiness, the big car moved off amid a hurricane of cheers. Genazzi seemed to make the most impressive start, for one French journalist in his magazine Lotto dramatically wrote, When, with a start of vertiginous rapidity, he disappeared like a bird taking flight, one had the vision of some fantastic Satan, some Mephistopheles escaped from the imagination of Gauthier, some child of German legend astride a mysterious hippogriff on the slopes of the Brocken. This is how James O'Rourke recalls the same moment. All those crowds there, pushing one another to get away to see that you hear the car going, like that. And the lads see, you only see his head, four wheels, there's nothing else in it. <laughs> and the boos of you, here coming, you know, a long ways out. A boo, terrible. Oh, sure, they were all leaping to you know, to look at it. To look at it, see the car, but you you only see it coming. We we only could see you see coming about five hundred yards, and then look up the road, and you only see it. You see, wow, the houses in the way like that, and uh, of course they went with into Kilcullen first, and turned to the right, and on that went on the car road, and there was all neighbours taking out, taking all neighbours uh, relations come from near and part, along the road to get into the house to see them going by, you know. Ah, I wish you, it was great, of course. Great to <laughs> see the cars, little cars, and they're sitting down, 
there was no car town in the wheels, you know, in that little place from the city like. But the roars, you could hear the roars from coming, you know, half a mile away. Singing like a, lo- like a bee, you know. A traction engine was placed on a hill about half a mile from the enclosure, and its whistle was to signal the approach of each car down the strait. Edge and Niff passed, but fourteen minutes elapsed before Owen's arrival was heralded. This meant the seven-minute gap between himself and Janatsi had disappeared. Henry Norman wrote of the approach. The whistle blew, and then, to the astonishment of all, it blew again. Immediately, and a few seconds later, two cars came flying down the hill, only about one hundred yards separating them. Every spectator held his breath. The two cars passed under the grandstand, only inches separating them. A few hundred yards up the opposite slope, Owen drew onto the grass on one side, and Janatsi passed him on the grass on the other, both cars wavering alarmingly as they left the smooth road. Janatsi told us afterwards that this was his only moment of anxiety in the whole race. Like the two going up the road now, the winner and, and the other lad. And they were like that when I looked, uh, looked out across. I could see them going up the hedge, do you see? They were like that together. And they, tell, they told me, the neighbours told me, they'd pass them up here, up on top of the hill like there, going only to move Miss Letitia Overend of Dublin saw the race from out on the course. Well, I remember this glorious day, and as we went down, somewhere near Kildare, I think, and uh, I, I went to my father, and I think there were other people, we just went and sat, as anyone would, on the glass, glass verge, you know, and then we saw the several cars passed, and then someone in authority came along and said, you can't sit there any longer because it wouldn't be safe, and moved us inside a fence, inside a, a field, but where we could see, but not as good a place, of course. We saw them all passing. We were thrilled. It caused tremendous excitement, the whole thing did, because of the interest and the cars and the the whole race itself had an immense attraction, you know? And um, I think it probably put it into my head and, and other people's uh, to take a greater interest in motoring, you know? Dennis Walsh of Clonagat near Monaster Evan, now 94 years old. They're over in the and trap from here to Ballyshannon. There was a lot of us in it and... We stabled the horse beside the Balishan and a few person walked into the village and then we took our positions for to see the start and I seen the start and I seen the finish. Of course I couldn't tell how many was in it, there was a good few in the race. And there was one old man, an aged man, you know he had beard. He looked for me to be an aged man. And they were sitting on a wall about 20 or 30 perch up from the village. And whatever happened, it was downhill he was coming. And he lost his eyesight, had he? Oh, well, there was a flyer. What happened to him, I couldn't tell you. And uh, he stuck the wall right under my feet where I was sitting on it. He stuck it nice and lightly. He, he, he was nearly stopped when he had the wall. He wasn't uh, three minutes until he was over again and on and off. I sure I heard his name a thousand times and I can't think of it though. 
There was no one horses, though. The race, indeed, was not without mishap. Stocks, driving for England, mistook the road outside Castle Dermot and collided with a wire barrier, smashing a front wheel and putting himself out of the race. Foxhall Keane for America had the fastest first lap, averaging 52.2 miles per hour and reaching speeds of over 80 on the straights. But, as a spectacle, the race proved a disappointment to some. What to remember of the race, they were all talked about for long before it come off, and we thought it would be a great thing, if you know what I mean. And when it actually come, we all go had the larger above, and the great crowd watching watching up the Kildare Road, and after a long, long time, one car come, and wasn't going that hard at all. And then after a long, long time, another would come, the other way. But when all was over, I went across the field, didn't go down to my own house, I couldn't, and got down up the town, you know what I mean, and there wasn't a sinner up there, black or white. Not a sinner. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a bone of a day at all. There was no sport at all, but any sort. There was an oak tree here as you, come, as you turned the corner and the Germans was putting a notice up on it, you know, of their own. The person that owned the tree, China, I think they were, gave it out to them. I had to take it down. I thought that very ugly myself. And I bought the shopkeeper. Well, I, couldn't, I won't give his name. I had a draper shop and a big family went down. And he got a, a big window all full of stuff. Eatables, every description at that time, buns and all. He never saw one, wasn't one up at all. So it was a quiet day, a very quiet day, to my mind anyway. But if there was little excitement at Monaster Evan, it was a different story in a thigh, as Michael Bowden remembers. Big roads all out on the roads, they were all out around. Up in three and over here, you know, the road is all cleared. See, to let the, these people out. There was no cars on the road to stop them. They had to get the road clear. They all went ahead and I am going up in the trees to see the all passing by. Because I didn't go any farther than the corner down here. All, all stood idle that day. The most stood idle. All, all the men were walking and all. The most stood idle for to see the, the, the race. I'm all had to stand uh, upon the pots, you know, off the roads out here, in on the pots. They called them all racing cars, that time. The cars, you know, they looked to be good, anyway. Of were off here, you see. Then they went to the hotel, there, they stopped there for a while, there, the German man. Well, you know, the German man, all, but I couldn't see the other men too well. He was a little man about my height now, and he had a right whisker and a red beard. And they threw him up and dear him on and dollied him up when he won the race at the hotel beyond. That's all I can go by. Michael Bowden's description of Genazze while stopped at the control in a thigh. On the second lap, all went well, until Charles Jarrett, driving his Napier for England, failed to appear. Henry Norman takes up the story. At last a telegram arrived from Police Sergeant Brady at Stradbury, saying, Jarrett knocked out. Send surgeon at once. Apparently confirming our worst fears. 
the President of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, Sergeant Ormsby, who was medical officer to the race, was dispatched by car on back roads to Stradbury. Jarrett and his mechanician Cecil Bianchi had been thundering down the steep hill into Stradbury at almost 80 miles per hour when suddenly his steering broke. The car veered out of control, mounted the bank, somersaulted and crashed into another bank. Jarrett was thrown clear of the car, but Bianchi, who had strapped his wrist to the dashboard, was pinned underneath. Jarrett ran to the wreck to find Bianchi caught under the car with a red-hot exhaust pipe burning into his chest and petrol running over him from the burst petrol tank. He appealed for help from people standing close by, but they seemed rooted to the spot with sheer fright. In desperation, Jarrett lifted the huge car and held it single-handed with superhuman effort until a bystander, Joseph Dobbs of Abbey Lakes, realised what was happening and crawled in under the car, cut the strap holding Bianchi to the dashboard and hauled him out. Jarrett and Bianchi then passed out and lay apparently lifeless on the road. The bystanders assumed that both men had died from their injuries and carried them into the barn of Michael Fingleton's farm nearby, where the bodies were laid out and covered with sheets. Jarrett survived and later wrote of the crash, When I came to, I was in complete darkness and for a moment thought my sight had gone. But then I found there was something covering me and drawing it off my face, discovered that I was wrapped in a white sheet and beside me was another white sheet. And when I called Bianchi and asked him was he dead, he replied feebly, I don't think I am. Watching this year's commemoration rally at Stradbury was a man who saw the crash. Sheriff was broke up coming down the rock there. I remember it well. The car must have got whole control. He, he broke it up anyway. And uh, there was a lot of people now looking for parts of that car, even the latter years. He finished right at the bottom of the rock hill above. That must be very old. That must be very old. Kate Connor saw the race at her home in Old Kilcullen. I remember the cars passing the door. At intervals, you know, now and again, and uh, all the names being shouted when they asked to pass. And the only name I can ever remember is Ginetsi. Go on, Ginetsi. You know, you hear that with all the cars, but I only could remember that one. Well, after that then... I remember handing out the boiling water to the men out in the tents of the field to make their tea. And um, the crowd all over, everybody, the place was packed, and anyone had a room around, he said, they were all, everyone was booked out. Thousands, there were everybody, everyone had a room to set. Got people in, as well as the, don't you know, the tents and all around the place. But there was no standing out there was a standing kill rush. Oh, I never saw it, though, I was just to hear it. I, there was a big sign at the house just outside my very door. And um, I forget what it was. It was Liger anyhow. I can remember the word Liger still up on the big board. Um, people were up all night. I think that, you know, started very early in the morning. People were up all night sightseeing and gathering around. And I don't even remember ever seeing a policeman. You see, I wasn't out much because I, I, I couldn't come out. We had no protection. You know, we were just walking on the road. Just by the very door to pass. Nobody walking. Free day. Everyone's leisure. All watching the race. Great day for Ireland, it was. <laughs> All day the race continued. A military band from the Curragh camp played at the grandstand. Rain fell from noon till two o'clock, and by late afternoon the race had been decided. Foxhall Keane had damaged the axle of his Mercedes in a skid and withdrew. All three American cars broke down, 
and the unlucky Baron Decatur smashed the axle of his Mercedes ten miles from the finish line. Father Dunny. I was a student of my youth at the time, and I was at the race. I, I was there. I was there for the pre, the preparations for the tremendous preparation for the race. You see, at certain vantage points, they erected stands, wooden stands, and charged half a crown to see the race. You see, and in four or five, there were four or five of these at, at the Motorward School. There was a very big, a very big um, number of stands. You see. The contestants went over the course for the, the couple of days beforehand to become familiar with it, you know. Or you could see them practicing. You, you wouldn't know them, though, except, except you, they didn't carry anything to identify themselves. Hmm. A fellow called Janatsi, that's fella, that fellow won it. And he was going with his head down and he was going like, oh, he, he was very determined to, to, to win his race. Oh, Janatsi, you could, you, could, you could see that Janatsi was winning from the start. See, they had, they, had to come through, they had to come the course three or four times. And Janatsi was, uh, oh, he was, you could see he was leading. But I saw every car passing by the place here. Only on a very few occasions were there more than one person passing at a time. On, on one or two occasions there were two cars going together. But then, it's a flopper regard excitement and the uh, the end. There wasn't the same amount of of excitement as there would be over over a horse race, you know. There wasn't the be tremendous excitement over the horse race, but this there wasn't much excitement over that. You get tired of the very I got tired of it looking at it anyway. The winner was Camille Genazzi in six hours thirty nine minutes at an average speed of forty nine point two miles per hour. The official results published the following day show that the French cars had been the most impressive, Deniff and Farman finishing second and third on Panhards and Gabriel being fourth on Amours. Edge, the only other finisher, was disqualified for getting a push at one of the controls. What was the Mercedes like that won? Frank Smith, having driven an identical car over the same course in this year's rally, had this to say. Well, it, it was very advanced design because most cars of this age had uh, automatic inlet valves, which means the inlet valves were opened by the suction of the piston. But this one had mechanically operated inlet valves, overhead inlet valves and side exhaust valves. There's no fan. It was Mercedes' uh, uh, patented radiator. It was the first of the honeycomb radiators. There's a pump, of course, a circulating pump. This is the low-tension magneto. This is an interesting little thing. If I shut this side of the bonnet down and we go around the other side, I'll show you. This camshaft here works the sparking plugs. And these are the sparking plugs here. And you see this lever moving up and down. The sparking plugs actually contact inside the cylinder. This device here pressurises the petrol tank to bring the fuel up to the engine and it pressurises it with exhaust gas, which you might think is dangerous, but there's a gauze flame trap in there. Well, these are modern tyres. They're built in the old moulds, but, uh, well, that one's still warm there. Now, they were working on canvas tyres, and canvas tyres had uh, 
woven canvas in them, as, as the description says. And this used to fret and fray, and eventually the strands would break, and you get a, a blown-out tyre. Well, there were cars just as fast as this, you know. The Napier was as fast as this, in fact, probably faster. Oh, the, it's very difficult to say what the value of it is. Uh, it's priceless, really, because there are only three of them in the world, and I would say that this is the most original of the three. The other two have been very much modified. But Genazzi was a very crafty driver, and he let all the other fellows break down, and then he carried on and won the race. And he won it, I think, at 49 miles an hour or thereabouts. To, to average 49 miles an hour, you've got to go fairly fast. But I don't think he was pushing the car to full stretch. As you've seen just with this short ride, uh, a brave man and a smooth road, I should think you, with downhill you could probably hit 100. Ginazzi, who was 32 at the time of the race, is said to have earned £8,000 for his win. Ironically, he was to die a few years later, shot by his friends as a result of a practical joke. The race was over. Now there was no further use for the enormous grandstand at Ballyshannon. The dismantling of it brought an unexpected bonus to one of the workers, James O'Rourke. I was at the loading of it. Oh, they were loading it. They had two big trawlers behind this big engine, two big wagons like. And they were uh, nearly two days loading them. And uh, somehow there was a weak spot in the road this time, and didn't the big wheel go down it? And of course the big wheel kept spinning and sat on the, the firebox of the engine. There was three lads on it. And they went down to the shop. I don't know how they got word now, but a, a chap come, a man come with a car, a small little car, and wasn't me and another chap on the cross. And he stopped asking us, where was the curra? And we said we'd show him. And we wanted the drive, because we never got to drive any car, do you see? So I got into the front of him, <laughs> with the driver, and uh, a chap that was with me was named John Robertson. He used to work up the road here. And he got into the seat behind. And we went on, and when we were going through Martinstown, there was a bridge across the road, you see. The bridge of that town would be up like that, now they're all levelled. And he was going so hard, we thought. When he went over the bridge, didn't the bottom would kick up, and the lad behind come in on top of it. Robertson. <laughs> and then we had to, put, had to stop and push him out. He got in, you know, these hands went down between the toes. So... We got afraid then the way he was going to come to the lad, you see. We said he's driving too hard. And there's a shop over here called The Bush. You see, it'd be about a mile and a half from the current. So we got, said we were going, to, he wanted to go into the shop. So we got, we didn't want to go to the shop at all because we had no money. <laughs> you see, we only wanted to die. And we had to walk by. <laughs> Three mile ground, nearly. We walked by, and we were laughing at one another. The race stimulated a new interest in motoring. From that time, the number and the range of models imported into Ireland dramatically increased, several examples of which were seen at this year's rally. 1908's gas. 20 horsepower. Made in Italy. It's supposed to have been a, a copy of the Mercedes at that time. Got that outside Strath Valley here, locally. And uh, it was completely disintegrated. In other words, I had to rebuild the wheels. It's a lot. It's an Argyle. It had one, only one owner before. And um, 
he was a major Jordan in in Mayo, and I purchased it from him. It had done two hundred thousand miles, they estimated. Then, well, I hope to average twenty-five. She'll do uh, thirty-five, but uh, you don't push these old ladies too hard. <laughs> Preservation of the altars, preservation and restoration is the principal thing that we. It's, a, it's, it's the it's the whole idea of the club, and the rally is secondary, and the other principal idea is not to let any cars out of the country. I see them going twice as hard by now, and they weren't all about it. You wouldn't see them, but you could see them playing that time. <laughs>